Every t-shirt tells a story. There's no better time than now to create a custom designed t-shirt and make a difference. Our friends at Underground Printing make it easier than ever to start a t-shirt fundraiser for your charity, school, business, or any cause you support. All you have to do is design your shirt, share why you are raising, and then share your campaign. They will ship the orders direct and send along the funds you raise. Underground actually created the I Am Norman t-shirts, which supported the United Way of Norman, and it was very easy to set up. Just visit pogo.undergroundshirts.com to learn more about how you can create your own t-shirt fundraiser today. That's pogo.undergroundshirts.com. Hello and welcome to I Am Norman, a podcast about the great city of Norman, Oklahoma. Well, I'm originally a Normanite. I'm a Norman girl. I've always looked at Norman as just a fabulous place. I had a great childhood here. And I am a Norman girl. I mean, born and raised from day one, Norman, Oklahoma. I haven't lived anywhere as long as I've lived here. So I call Norman home now, and it's a, it's a great place to live. I'm Zach Logsdon, and I hope you'll join me each episode as we hear the stories of the amazing people, businesses, philanthropies, and upcoming events in Norman, and what makes our big little city so great. I love that in Norman, I am part of something that's so much bigger than me. I just think that the people here in Norman are extremely generous. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Nothing loves anything the way Norman loves Norman. The I Am Norman podcast is brought to you by Norman Heating, Air Conditioning, and Plumbing. When your home or business needs cold air or hot water, Call Norman Heating, Air Conditioning, and Plumbing at 405-823-9641 or visit them online at normanair.com. Hello, Normanites, and welcome to another episode of the I Am Norman podcast. Thanks so much for joining us once again, and big thanks to our guest today. Today we have a, a Nor- Norman native, uh, been around Norman a very long time, working in the news industry uh, for more than 40 years. He is uh, currently an adjunct instructor of journalism at the University of Oklahoma. He dabbles in real estate. Uh, and he is the former editor of the Norman Transcript, among many other th- things uh, uh, in, in the journalism field. Uh, today, our guest is Andy Rieger. Andy, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. I'm honored to be part of it, Zach. Thanks for asking me. Andy, uh, as, as I mentioned, you've been around in Norman a, a very long time. So give us, give us the history of Andy Rieger in, in this, the great city of Norman, Oklahoma. <laughs> well, let's do the Cliff Notes version. I'm okay. Sure people are- not that interested in it, but uh, yeah, I grew up here. I was uh, uh, one of uh, six children. Grew up uh, kind of northeast of town you know, on an acreage out there. We were. I grew up in the you know the '60s and '70s, probably the last of the free-range children in Norman, where <laughs> a town of forty or fifty thousand, where you kind of it's a different era. You mm-hmm. you rode your bike everywhere. You hitchhiked. Uh, your parents didn't worry about where you were and those kind of things. Um, Grew up then, uh, worked uh, worked at the newspaper in high school, 
of course, was a paper boy like many um, journalists were early in their careers. So I was a paper boy and uh, then worked, uh, got out of school, high school early to go down and work uh, at the newspaper and worked in the mailroom down there. And then, uh, oh, uh, college at OU, um, have uh, undergraduate in journalism, and I have a master's degree in public administration. And uh, so worked at the uh, Daily Oklahoma and Oklahoma City Times in Oklahoma City. Um, for uh, several years, then uh, started a weekly newspaper in Noble, Oklahoma, and about that time I started teaching um, at the university, and then uh, uh, my wife Karen and I have three children, and uh, for a brief time I um, left the workforce and stayed home to help raise the children for a few years, and then uh, in 1995 I got a call from the publisher of the transcript one enough, I was interested in uh, coming to work there as the uh, managing editor. And so um, I took the job, and uh, my kids have been mad at me ever since because <laughs> we were having a good time at home together. So did that for 20 years, Zach. I was wow. the editor there from 1995 to 2015. Um, most of the time I was teaching uh, one class, adjunct, uh, community journalism class, or public affairs reporting class along the way. So really I've taught for more than 20 years at the university, done that. And, um, uh, you know, family um, grew up, uh, family was part of the land run here. Uh, so we've been here wow. uh, a long time. Um, yeah. Here in Norman. So I have a, I have kind of a, I mean, uh, a lot of people come and go, but not too many people are natives and stay here their entire lives. So um, I'm a fourth um fourth generation resident here and, and uh, my children are fifth generation residents of, of Cleveland County. So so that's kind of a, in a nutshell where I am. Um, now I still teach and as you said, I do a little real estate work and kind of do some work with our family's investments. So you, you, as you've indicated, you and your family have been in and around Norman for for quite a while. Uh, you you have to have uh, uh, had opportunities uh, uh, to 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 go go away to you know, go pretty much anywhere. You probably could you know either either in your journalism career, editing in a, another paper, or uh, as a professor. Mm-hmm. You know you you have to have had those opportunities, but you've stayed in Norman uh, this entire time. What is it that's so special about it to you? What keeps you sticking around? You know, I think part of it is. Um we we have a we have a good quality of life here, and when you go other places to visit, you you realize that you know things aren't the same everywhere you go. It's especially even in Oklahoma or other states, it's a it's a different atmosphere. And I think, uh, and I tell my students this, and and coworkers, uh, reporters that come through the paper, uh, at some point in your career, you have to decide: Do you want to be a big fish in a little pond? or a little fish in a big pond. And you have to kind of decide which way you want to go. And so um, I felt like, you know, if I stayed here, I could um, hopefully make an impact to make a, a better community here. That's uh, and that you have uh, that you have your your name uh, precedes you and everybody I've heard your name mentioned multiple times just in doing this podcast as somebody that um, that has helped shape this community a a great deal Um, and I want to talk about that because as you mentioned uh, you know when you when you were younger growing up uh, it was a town of forty or fifty thousand people Uh, we've we've more than doubled. 
in size since that time. And gosh, Norman Norman has changed a ton even since I you know first first moved here for college and uh, was growing up coming to, to football games, basketball games down here. Talk about the that the, the growth of Norman uh, and, and kind of some of the the milestone uh, uh, moments in our history that that led us from where we were, you know, uh, 40, 50 years ago to where we are today. Sure. Well, let's start a little bit before that. You know, Norman uh, really was established. Uh, Abner Norman, the surveyor, came mm-hmm. through here in 1871, so more than 100 years ago. It came through here 150 years ago, and and did a survey for the railroad. And so what people need to remember is um, Abner Norman never lived in Norman. Mm-hmm. He came through here as a, he was, uh, he was 21 years old. He was hired as a, as a surveyor and he was the chain man on a, on a survey crew and he pulled the chains and then something happened and he became the foreman of the crew. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, uh, he was only here for probably, around 1871, 1872, 73, he came to Norman. Uh, he was supposed to come here in 1922. They had a big celebration planned, but he, unfortunately he died back in Kentucky. So really, ever Norman never lived in Norman. That's crazy. Railroad came through here in 1887, and that's really how my family came through here. My great-grandfather was a German immigrant, came to this country at age 14, and started working on the railroad, and he came through... Um, Norman, the Oklahoma uh, Territory, um, 1886, 1887, and when they were building the railroad, basically from Texas north to Kansas, came through here. They finished the railroad in 1887, in April of 1887, so I think uh, he'd heard rumblings of a land run or kind of like the area, so he stayed around and had the land run there. So that's really how we came through here. Wow. Um, you mentioned the university uh, community, uh, significant. Um, you know, the university started here in 1890. Um, community had to rally around, raise some money to actually get uh, put up a bond and build some buildings for the territorial legislature to locate here. So that was a really a, a university, uh, probably a first seminal event in the, in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, Griffin Hospital uh, is now was Central State Hospital. Um, before that, that was a big part of Norman for many years. It still is, but it's really a shadow of what it once was. Yeah. Um, my my grandfather was a psychiatrist, so I have a okay. appreciation for the hospital itself. And you know, um, Oklahoma in its early days, even before we were a state, we sent our mental patients to Illinois and paid them per day. Per dean to keep them, and uh, in about eighteen, I think about eighteen ninety-five, there was a small college on the camp, um, kind of on the east side of Norman called Highgate College. It's a Methodist school for women, and Highgate College couldn't compete with OU because OU offered free tuition back then. Okay, um, so it's not such a good deal today. But uh, <laughs> they offered free tuition and fees uh, in order to convince the farmers and ranchers to send their kids here. You know, um, a lot of people were a little bit worried to send their kids off the farm to a college. And so mm-hmm. there was a free tuition they brought here. Well, Highgate couldn't compete with that. So they, they closed their doors and um, some doctors organized to uh, open a sanitarium on the east side of town. Uh, 
to where Oklahoma could keep its mental patients here rather than send them out of state. And so, you know, at one time there were there were three or four thousand, maybe five thousand patients on the hospital grounds. Mm. Um, so it was a it was a city within a city up mm-hmm. here. They had their own um, they had their own bakery, their own ice plant. They had uh, you know just uh, uh, tremendous. Uh, uh, dairies. They had farming operations. Oh, wow. Uh, people. So, um, you know, they 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 changed the name to Central State in 1915, I think. And so, and then I think they changed it to Northern Hospital back in the 70s. But uh, it was a huge institution. And, um, you know, the changes in, in mental health treatment and diagnosis are so significant that we do not have as many inpatient people there. We have still a lot of treatment going on, right. not as many people are, are hospitalized there because of that. So, you know, that was a big event. And then, you know, I don't know how long you've lived here, but uh, there are two Navy bases operated here mm-hmm. started in 1942, and that was really a boon for the community because in 1942, any able-bodied man that wasn't in the service um, was put to work building um, these temporary buildings all throughout the north side of town and the south side of town. There's still a few of them still standing. You see them around. The Optimist Gym was once a drill hall. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some on the south base that the university still uses, but uh, very few of them are, are, are still standing. Right. But, uh, you know, they, uh, I was, uh, you know, the, the state came in and where the, the Navy leased some 60,000 acres around the state and purchased about 2,500 acres here in Northern. And then when the war was over, they, they decommissioned the bases and pretty much um, the land you know, went to the university or the city of Norman. And so that was, you can imagine, um, you know, any university getting uh, that kind of acreage right next door to it. I mean, that's a huge deal for right. the university. To do that, so then I would say you you you, you ask um, initially about the growth of the community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, the Interstate 35 was not completed through Norman until 1959. Okay, and so um, that's a that would be a real seminal event because it allowed people to work in Oklahoma City and get back and forth very quickly. Right. Right. So if you think about it, uh, before that, people had to use um, Old 77, which is now Porter. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the main north-south highway. And so people had to go through that and all the, go through more and the stop stoplights and mm-hmm. all through, you know, eastern part of Oklahoma City to get to work somewhere. Well, when I-35 was completed, um, that made us more of a bedroom community. Mm-hmm. You know, before that, we could be a kind of an isolated college town. And, and, but, but after that completion, think about, I mean, west of where I 35 is, there were no houses out there in 1959. There are a few farms and that's about it. But, you know, since then it's developed significantly. The west oh, yeah. side of Norman is just boomed up there. So, yeah. Um, in the 60s, early 60s, the next big event I would say would be the annexation of land on the east side of town in the north side of town for um, that Lake Thunderbird watershed. 
Mm-hmm. You know, we were building the watershed, which opened, I think, Thunderbird opened about 1965. So those those areas um, east of town were all unincorporated areas, uh, small communities. And in the early 60s, just almost overnight, Norman annexed, I believe, 175 square miles of land. Uh-huh. So if you think about it, we went from a, a town of about... Um, uh, 20 square miles to a town of over 190 square miles. <laughs> wow. Yes, I mean, I mean it's just amazing. Yeah. You know, those people still don't have the services that uh, that everybody in town has. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's it's a different, but it's still part of the city of Norman. And, um, you know, th- th- that was not um, in all harmony that, you know, people out there didn't want to be annexed. Um, there was there were some lawsuits and some some bitter disputes about annexation. So, um, I would say that we we also grew um, in the '60s with um, the first African American home ownership. Mm-hmm. Norman became more of an inclusive community in 1967 when um, uh, George and Barbara Henderson and their family moved here. Mm-hmm. You know, before that we were we were. Um, uh, a sundown town, and it was, um, you know, an embarrassing time. It happened, you know, in, in our lifetime. So, yeah, so crazy. It's been, um, yeah, it, you wouldn't think about that now. And, and I tell my children that story, and they think, "What? What were you thinking?" What were <laughs> right. You thinking? Right. So, it's. Uh, um, I'd say the two other, two or three other events. The weather industry um, took off here. That's been a great growth, um, but the. Uh, a few pioneers, the severe storm lab here in the 60s and the meteorology school uh, both taken off. And we've had several private uh, industries locate along the weather lines. And then uh, I think two other, the Borens coming here in 1994 mm-hmm. to be president of the university. Um, I think you had to have lived in Norman before that to appreciate the changes that they uh, made, both the um, you know, the campus and the academic community, I mean, it's just a different place than, than before they were here. Right. Um, and then lastly, uh, Zach, I would say the voters' approval of Norman Ford in 2015. I think that was a, a big step uh, for uh, the quality of life issues in the community, new libraries, new, you know, Westwood Swim Park, which uh, was new when I was 10 years old. Um, mm-hmm. And the library was was open when I mean I can remember the opening of the old library. Mm-hmm. And so you know it, uh, these are some um, some some projects that will carry forward for the next thirty or forty years. Yeah, and make people you know proud and uh, quality of life here in Norman. You know, you 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 referenced so many so many changes and, and, and kind of major changes that happened in Norman over the years. It's it's you know the, the, I remember a time where where there was uh, there were there was no industry uh, on uh, or no no shopping the retail over on Ed Noble Parkway. I remember when that was going mm-hmm. in and uh, you know th- th- there was nothing over there and and that became uh, that grew up and then and now we're already to the point where that's kind of going away uh, in favor of other areas <laughs> and. And it's crazy to see that, but but thinking, you know, people that live in Norman now, even even myself, I've lived here uh, since the since the mid '90s. Um, it, imagining Norman without Lake Thunderbird, without I-35. I mean, it's it's 
I, I can't. I mean, I, I can't picture it. Uh, what the town could possibly possibly have been like uh, back then. Um, so that's uh, that's so interesting. I also find it extremely interesting the the story. And, and correct me if if I have this a little bit wrong. wrong but uh-huh. you mentioned Abner Norman. Uh, but the as I understand it, you know, it wasn't like he ever intended for for this this area to be called uh, Norman uh, it, he carved his his name on a tree or something and somebody years later happened to see it or or and called it Norman's camp or something like that and it just kind of just kind of one of those things that happened is that is that kind of how it went down so i wasn't there <laughs> right but, uh, no, I, was I understand but i understand my um, people ask me things about the land run. I say, well, I wasn't there, but I, I read it. But uh, so, so that's that's uh, pretty close to the story. My understanding was that uh, he was 21 years old, and he was all of a sudden made in charge of this survey crew, which was a pretty rough group of people. And so that you know, imagine, you know, going through the the woods and and basically um, laying out where the railroad right away should be. And so you're going through some pretty rough areas. Well, uh, he's a young um, uh, head of this survey crew, and uh, his men, um, it probably, um, to mock him, camp, uh, carved Norman's camp in an elm tree down about where the U-Haul place is around Lindsay and Classen. Where Lindsay and Classen, right. there, was a, there was a spring. There was a spring just south of there, and they believe that's where they set up their camp to do the survey. And uh, so the story is that when the railroad came through here, they needed to um, establish a name for um, each basically watering stop on the railroad. Mm -hmm. And some railroad workers saw where it said um, Norman's camp. And so they, that's, they said, well, we'll call this Norman. Mm -hmm. And uh, the story and more is that um, somebody had trouble getting, uh, mail. Somebody named Moore had trouble getting their mail, and so they put up a big sign near the railroad tracks that said "Moore" <laughs> on a boxcar. That's hilarious. And that's how they got the name up there. So, no, it was not. It was never his intention. I mean, he he had no ties to Oklahoma. Right. You know, so he he uh, he grew up in Kentucky. He was born in I think in Lexington or in Louisville, Kentucky, um, in 1850. So when he came to Oklahoma in 1871, he was 21 years old and. Yeah. Uh, had some training, uh, but he he had, had no ties to to uh, Norman um, or or Oklahoma for that matter. I love that because you think of you you, you assume uh, that every every town is is named after someone that that did something that they they donated the land or they <laughs> they were the first mayor of the right. town or whatever. This guy uh, probably years later finds out there's a town named after him, and he's like, "Wait, what? <laughs> you did right. what? Why why would you?" Do that? His family was in the lumber business in Kentucky, and uh, so after he worked surveying, he went back and worked and was a successful uh, lumber um, lumber yard um, owner partner. And um, so he died in in 1922, the year they had a they were planning a big um, celebration um, for him and for the town. And and uh, unfortunately, he he never lived to make it. But his family, I think, some of his family have been here over the years to visit. They're That's very great. proud of it. That's great. I think he's most. I think what I understand is that he's his family was most proud, and they said he would be 
very proud that there was a university located here. Yeah, absolutely. that's a really, really cool story and, and, and awesome that our, our, our two towns here, back to back, Moore and Norman, were named pretty much by you know, over accidents yeah. or, or completely unintentionally uh, because of, of, of signs that happened to be put up there. Uh, that's good stuff. Right. Um, Let's talk about journalism a bit. You've been uh, that's how you've okay. you made made your career. Uh spent a lot of time reporting and editing and and uh, you have seen a lot of events. Uh you you've been both uh on, on campus um, in in doing journalism with OU Daily uh and and with students there and is obviously with the Norman Transcript. Talk about um first I guess let's talk about your time with the transcript and and some of the more memorable uh, moments or stories or or things that stand out as, as um, kind of highlights of your career uh, as far as the newspaper goes. Mm-hmm. Well, I was before I was at the Transcript. I was at the at Daily Oklahoma in Oklahoma City. So um, I was a young police reporter on an afternoon paper, and um, I always uh, tell people my I went to the jail every morning at five thirty, and uh, you know you got to see. A side of life, kind of like sitting in the ER for 12 hours. You know, you see a side of life that's a little bit foreign to you. So um, I, I really cut my teeth as a police reporter on the Oklahoma City Times, which, you know, if you work on an afternoon newspaper like the transcript was when I started, you know, you really have to uh, fly by the seat of your pants. You're, you're moving pretty quick because things don't always happen on your deadline, you know, if something happens in the morning, you got to get it ready, got to get paper that afternoon. Mm-hmm. So it was a little different era. The transcript, when I came to Transcript in 95, it was um, uh, after the bombing, and, um, you know, we were still an afternoon paper. So um, it was uh, it was not as lively as the Oklahoma City Times was. I think we probably, uh, they were a little more lax. We were the only game in town and people sort of acted that way. Mm-hmm. But I hope we, I hope we pushed the staff a little bit. I had, I had 22 on my staff when I started and, you know, sadly, I think that's down probably half that many on the news staff now. So it's a little different era that the paper went to a morning edition about maybe about, uh, 1999 or 2000 around there. So it was a, it was an afternoon edition for me for about five years, and then uh, then it became a morning delivery. And then, of course, with the um, with the website and the internet now, it's uh, pretty much a twenty four hour operation. Yep. You know, as we're sitting here now, I've already got two news alerts from them. <laughs> Some things are happening mm-hmm. in the community. So, you know, it's a it's a little um, it's a little different. It's um, it's very much um, now people. People still want news, but they don't want an appointment to get it. They want it on their time, and they want it when it happens. Yeah. They don't want to wait to have it on the porch in the morning. So um, that's that's a little different. I think the other difference is, um, and I talked to my students about this, is I, I really believe that people still want news. Um, they they just don't want to pay for it anymore. Right. Um, less than saw a study the other day that, in nationally, only about 20% of people actually pay for some type of news service. Wow. Um, in Oklahoma, it's uh, about 13%. So, you know, we, we, you know, we, we're our own worst enemy. We've decided to give it away, you know, all that content, we give it away. And now, with advertising, retail, you know, newspapers are very tied to retail. And when it, retail changes... And, and more of their advertising is online, 
and less of it in print, more of it nationally, very few local retailers anymore. You know, that that causes the news providers to have to say, well, you know what, we need you to value our content and pay for that. Mm-hmm. And you know, we haven't we haven't made a very good argument that, you know, really you need to pay for content. It used to be advertising paid for that content. Now, you know, um, it, there has to be a way to to uh, to finance the news. You know, news is free as long as you can afford to report it. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember one time when when we first uh, put our our news online, and um, uh, we made the decision to put up a paywall and start charging people to to access the news that everyone else paid to have delivered to their home. And uh, I got a call from somebody on campus, and and, and he said. You know, you can't charge for news. News is free. <laughs> you know, I thought about it for a little bit, and I said, I said to him, I said, okay, I'll tell you what, Friday is payday here. I want you to come up, and we'll have a meeting, and I want you to tell all the reporters, the photographers, the page designers, and everyone that works here that they're not getting a paycheck because news is free. So I think he hung up on me. So, <laughs> so anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a different a different era. So let's let's talk about that a little bit because uh, you know I, I remember obviously that the times um, you know I I, I cut out uh, photos of Brian Bosworth from the newspaper uh, every, every day as a child uh, hung them on my wall and and the newspaper was a part of my daily routine uh, reading the sports page growing up and uh, then you know slowly over time we have seen newspapers um, become you know it, it go it, all online and then became not just online it's on your phone it's as you mentioned. It's it's on demand. It's not reported. The things that happen today aren't reported tomorrow. They're reported five minutes after they happen. Um, are you? I you know when I go into Seven uh, Eleven, I still see newspapers there. Uh, they're they're obviously not as as prevalent as they're not in everybody's driveway like they used to be. Do you do you see a time uh, in the near future where where newspapers are completely uh, a thing of the past, or do you think uh, we'll hold on to those um, maybe in, in in some form for for uh, quite a while longer? You know, the obituaries for newspapers have been written for many years, and, and uh, uh, I, I I don't think we'll maybe in my lifetime I don't think we'll see them go away, um, but. There, there are fewer people that take the printed product. There's, because of the internet, more people have access, more people than ever have access to information, content produced by a news organization. But, you know, uh, I was thinking about that the other day. Um, when, when I was, you know, 12, 13 years old, I had a paper route, like a lot of people did. And I delivered um, in all of the neighborhoods around my home from, you know, probably a square mile area. And at one time, I think I had maybe 300 customers. Mm-hmm. And whenever I needed somebody to take my route for the weekend or I needed to go out of town or something like that, we scout camper, um, I would give my substitute a list, not of the people that subscribed, but I gave them a very short list of the people that did not subscribe. You know, mm-hmm. it was... It was so much easier to tell them who did not take the paper than <laughs> right, right, yeah. So today, that's that's flipped. Um, you know, in some neighborhoods, there's still papers all over the place, but they're mostly 
older, more established neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go some neighborhoods and you know drive a block or so early in the morning and not see these people. Um, so that's that's really what's changed. Zach, when I was growing up, in my home we took three newspapers. Wow. We subscribed to the Transcript. We subscribed to the Daily Oklahoma. We subscribed to the Christian Science Monitor, which came in the mail. And, and you know, I can remember my parents requiring us to read them, to look at the papers. And, you know, when I was a kid, I sometimes would get scolded because I wanted to read the paper before I delivered it to my customers. <laughs> um, and that was also because it was during the time of the Vietnam War. And, and you know, I was very interested because I was a young man approaching draft age, and mm-hmm. I wanted to know what was happening over there. Yeah. So, you know, it, it was a different era. My children, none of them take the daily newspaper, um, even when their dad was the editor, they didn't subscribe. <laughs> so, I think, but they're still very interested in this. They still want to know what's going on, and they still want to remain engaged. So, how do you transmit that to? Um, you know, how you, you monetize that to where, you know, they're, they're receiving news, but they're also helping carry the freight of that content. So that's the difference on that. Um, now, the, the other thing is there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of information out there that's not news. That people have become gullible in thinking that it is news. Um, you know, because of technology, um, any pajama gorilla can send out things from his or her basement, and people will think that that has some nice value to it. Mm-hmm. But unless it's put out by a trained journalist, someone who has the ability to vet sources, to look at both sides, to consider someone's agenda that's sending something out, you know, and to me, that person. They can be part of the media, but they're not really a journalist. I make a distinction between those two. So, so let's uh, di- dive a little bit. Hmm? I was, was going to dive a little bit deeper into that because that 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 kind of uh, I, I had a question about that very thing. You know, we, we hear the term fake news a lot right now, uh, and, and we do live in an era where you know, there was a time where if it, it was if it was printed. On something that you saw sitting at the end of your driveway, you you could you could rest assured that it had been researched, it had been reviewed, it had been you know made sure that the what is being reported as facts. And now, not only do we have people that are reporting things that that is just their their opinions or 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 not researched information and publishing it as truth, we have uh, people that are publishing things that they know aren't true in order to mislead us. So I guess what is your perspective? I, I, I don't know what my question is there other than is there, is there a way to is, – is there a way to get around, around this? Are we, just, are we just destined for a world flooded with information that we then have to go figure out if it's true or not? That's a good question. Um, I, I think that uh, people need to be able to trust – uh, legacy media, uh, such as New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, you know, for political leaders to lump all those people together in a vast conspiracy, you know, um, you, you couldn't get agreement among those different news organizations on anything. Mm-hmm. 
people who think they're drawing cahoots and a conspiracy to produce fake um, stories. Uh, it's just, I mean, it's just an alternative universe that people are living in that think that. Right. There's no, um, you know, there's there's no agreement among those type of things. Um, but but you're right. There is there is a lack of trust in um, in journalism. And I think it's there's also a lack of trust in many of the of the building blocks of our society. I mean, you think about it. Uh, we have scandals and trust in our churches. Mm-hmm. We have. We have scandals in our financial institutions that cause us to lose trust. We have scandals in our government that cause us to lose trust. So it's an overall lack of trust in in lots of institutions, not just the press. So I think that's um, that builds on a lot of it. Um, I think the the internet too is a you know even though that gives us a, a tremendous voice and a tremendous platform, it's also a tremendous um, source of misinformation and abuse. Um, you know, when 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 I sat in the editor's chair and we had something incorrect or, um, you know, that people knew was incorrect, you know, there were people sitting on my couch outside the office. Um, today, uh, a, someone posts something on Facebook or TikTok or these other... Um, <laughs> uh, Uncha- unchallenged, unvetted, no mm-hmm. checks. Um, there's nobody. There's no ass to kick. There's nobody to go see. Right. You know, um, it's a very different world. There's no accountability in those uh, those organizations. Uh, if the Washington Post has something blatantly wrong, you know, their readers are going to let them know by letter. By they're going to show up. They're going to vote with their feet. They're going to quit subscribing. Uh, so it's um, you know it's a it's a entirely different um, platform you know uh, to to do, deliver and disseminate news. So so e- even at the highest levels though that there's there is bias though so, you know the New York Times uh, isn't isn't um, reporting uh, false information. Uh, you know if you if you are left leaning you read certain newspapers you watch CNN and you get your your beliefs or your thoughts and opinions confirmed and if you're right leaning you watch Fox, Fox News and and you get your uh, thoughts and opinions confirmed. Is is there room anymore for for just facts, is or in order to have a successful news outlet, do you have to have an agenda? You know, I, th- I think that um, we have a lot of tribalism in this country. And as you said, you you gravitate towards um, entities that um, kind of buttress your beliefs mm-hmm. and make you feel better about about what you already believe. Um, that's a scary thing that we get into. Um, I purposely watch, you know, around the, you know, uh, different sources every day. Uh, one of my favorite is the BBC. I listen to BBC just about every day at three o'clock. Um, and, and I try to watch a little bit of Fox News. I try to watch CNBC. I try to watch, you know, and, and to get a balance of, of what each side. I don't think that they purposely try to mislead, but they definitely have um, uh, they definitely have a push one way or the other. There's no question to do that. It's not any different than um, you know uh, the Norman transcript 
you know, maybe pushing for um, building a lake or, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, a better football coach and things like that. <laughs> right. Okay, you know, fair enough. We're always going to have, you're always going to have uh, some type of, of uh, uh, not, I don't want to say agenda, that's too strong a word, but I think you're going to have uh, some kind of momentum one way or the other to do that. And I think the readers know that. Yeah. You know, they, they, they understand that. And, you know, people are smart enough to, to know that, that there's no real neutrality. People might strive for it, but neutrality is a hard thing to do. So, uh, so looking back on your career, uh, you uh, have to have interviewed some impressive people or, or covered some really uh, neat moments. Uh, if you had to pick one one thing out of your mind as uh, maybe something to somebody you you could you could go visit with again, or or a moment you could go witness again uh, and and uh, investigate again. What uh, I, I, there are probably a number of them, um, uh, but, but if, if there's one that sticks out in your mind, uh, w- what would that be? Boy, that's that's tough to narrow down. Um, over 40 years, you know, I've interviewed a lot of a lot of people and covered a lot of events, um, tornadoes, uh, you know, different uh, different uh, calamities, ice storms here, floods. We've had. Uh, just about everything. You can have wildfires. <laughs> yep. Um, you know, I, I uh, when I was a young reporter in Oklahoma City, I, I, I got a tip that the state of Colorado was going was attempting to um, move the Cowboy Hall of Fame from Oklahoma City to Colorado, hmm. and it it came during a time which uh, the city was considering. Um, allowing some subsidized housing to be built um, in the backyard of the Cowboy Hall of Fame, and so it was a fairly controversial. And the Cowboy Hall of Fame had a had a director then who was a little bit controversial, and he was very upset that they were going to allow this. And so um, we got a tip at the paper, and they put me on the story um, that the governor of Colorado, I think his name was uh, Lamb, Governor Lamb. Uh, was going to fly to Oklahoma City and meet with the Cowboy Hall of Fame people and make them an offer to move the center to Denver. And so the governor's office wouldn't confirm any of this. It was all hush-hush. And so um, what I did is I um, I got a picture. I uh, went to the library, of all things, and got a picture of the governor of Colorado and uh, uh, took that, and then I went to the Cowboy Hall of Fame on the day he was supposed to be here and waited in the parking lot until a limousine pulled up and a man got out and it was the governor of Colorado. Mm-hmm. And I went up to him and identified myself and said, I understand you're here to try to move the Cowboy Hall of Fame to Colorado. And uh, he was very upset that I would recognize him and that I would the story because they were trying to build that anybody knowing it. Mm-hmm. And anyway, this made you make for a good story. It was good uh, gumshoe reporting is kind of one of the things I was proud of over the years. Um, I've been to five national political conventions. Um, those are always fun. Mm-hmm. I've taken students to them. Um, and those are always uh, fun. I think, you know, those interviews that are kind of uh, 
people don't expect uh, to turn into something exciting, um, become more memorable. You, you keep those things in mind. You mentioned your students, uh, and, and you've, and you've been teaching for a while now. If there's one lesson that you try to impart, if there's one thing you hope your students learn from you after taking your class or, or, or being mentored by you, uh, what, what is that one lesson? What do you try to impart to them? You know, Zach, I probably, I, I hope that, uh, my students are never afraid to seek out information uh, in their communities. And the classes I teach now, uh, I really enjoy because it gets students away from their computer. It teaches them that not everything can be um, obtained online. You have to go in person to do certain things. Mm-hmm. You know, I take my students to the county jail. I take them to the courthouse. I take them to the police station, city hall, school board meetings, to show them not never be intimidated by a government official, never be intimidated by an elected official when you're trying to do your job to get information. And I hope, I hope, um, you know, I, I started teaching this class because at the at the transcript I had young reporters that would come and I would tell them to get some kind of document from the courthouse or city hall, and they would immediately go to their computer. And to look that up, and I would say, let's take a walk across the street to the courthouse. And and that was like a foreign thing for some people to go and to ask for information from those people who keep that information for you. That's your courthouse. That's your city hall. That's your court uh, police station. You know, you should never feel intimidated going in there looking for information. And I hope I've succeeded with that. Um, we also go to the health department, which is, which, you know, people question why you take reporters there. And now we're all going to the health department <laughs> for information. Yeah. Yeah. So I felt pretty proud when I saw one of my students reporting from, from the health department. Andy, I feel like I could talk to you all day and 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 learn a ton, and and I, I, I maybe should have you back on and talk more about uh, Norman. I'm I'm sure there are so many stories you could tell, but I want to be respectful of your time and and uh, just ask you a couple more questions. And these are softballs; you'll knock these out of the park. It'll be easy. Uh, the first one is is a two part question. Uh, I'll ask you the first part and let you respond. Then my follow up. Um, and that question is: uh, Tell me a place uh, in Norman that you grew up going to a restaurant or, or, or it can be, I guess it could be anything, uh, but a place you grew up going to, uh, in Norman that is no longer there that you sure wish you could, uh, you could go to uh, at least one more time. Boy, that is a softball, Zach. Come on, <laughs> now. Um, I would, um, I would say the, the old A&W root beer stand mm-hmm. on Robinson just, West of Flood. I don't know if you ever saw that, but it was a little drive in there. And um, it was a place that our family would go. There were six children in our family. And so uh, that was a big event to go out to a drive in. Yeah. So we would go there and you had you could get a root beer in a frosted mug. And they had a whole family of hamburgers, a baby burger, a teen burger, a <laughs> papa burger. Nice. And you kind of knew, knew where you were on life's uh, uh, continent by what burger or what <laughs> uh, root beer that you got. So nice. that that was there, and you know that was a reward for a you know winning a, a great baseball game or uh, learning to swim or mowing a yard well, those kind of things. So that was torn down probably 
Oh, sometime in late 1990s, uh, maybe 97, 98. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was, uh, a lot of people were sorry to see that go. And a lot of kids worked there growing up. They were car hops. And mm-hmm. so I said something the other day. It's a it's a, a place where kids were courteous. The kids' car hops were courteous. And long before Chick-fil-A taught them how to be courteous. <laughs> that's that's good stuff. My son works at Chick Fil A, and he's uh, he's learned a lot about there customers. That that'll be the what what he tells uh, you know. Fifty years from now, he'll talk about uh, Chick Fil A customer service. You know what what's funny about the A and W thing is uh, I don't remember it being there, even though I I was coming here uh, through the throughout the eighties uh-huh. as a child. I guess we took a different route uh, into Norman, and I never saw it. And my wife uh, one day we were talking about. Um, uh, you know, just restaurants that are no longer here, and she mentioned something about A and W, and I was like, "What are you? Do you you're, what? You, I don't know what you're talking about. There, there's no A and W." And we actually, I had to call. Uh, I had to call who was I called Andy Shear. Uh, over at uh, yeah. uh, at the bank, and I said because I knew he had been here forever, and he said, "Oh yeah, we used yeah. to go to A and W all the time." So uh, uh, yeah. we had a big argument over whether because I, I thought I was like, "No way, you're mis- you're misremembering that there was there was never an A and W." But uh, but uh, you've you've confirmed it was a hometown hanging once, out, once sure. again, of course. Yeah. So so part two of that question is is now uh, in in here here Norman. I ask all of my guests this question: uh, Where is your favorite place to go grab a bite to eat, and what do you like to get when you go there? So um, because I'm on campus some, and because I kind of live in that area, um, I really like to go to Midway Deli oh, and have lunch it. there. Yeah. Um, and and uh, I, I do because it's, um, one, because it's a historic place. That building was built, it was a gas station in 1926. It was a skelly station. Mm. And then it was um, Lee, Lee's Midway Market. A guy named Lee Kidd operated it for many years. Mm-hmm. And when I was a kid, I had to take piano lessons across the street from there. <laughs> and I remember waiting, waiting for my sisters to finish their piano lessons across the street. And I would go over to um, the Midway Market, and uh, I could get a twin popsicle and uh, <laughs> my uh, for seven cents. And uh, so oh, I would wow. break it in half, and I had to save half of it for my sister. And um, leave um, the guy that ran the store. He would let me leave the um, <laughs> part for my sister in the in the freezer while oh, I go outside. Awesome. So no, I like to go there now. Um, I like to have a sandwich. Um, uh, I, I, I sometimes sneak in there and have a Frito chili pie, even mm-hmm. though that's probably not the best, the most healthy thing for me. But uh, uh, Bob Thompson always, uh, if my wife asks, he always tells her that uh, Andy's always in here ordering salads. So uh, anyway. <laughs> Bob's the best. I I, I, I ate a ranchero uh, from uh, Midway yeah. just today uh, before before yeah. we recorded this. Uh, I, so so I, I, I joked that it's where. Uh, it's where intelligentsia meets the hoi polloi. <laughs> Absolutely, that's a, that's that's good. <laughs> um, and then my final question for you, Andy, uh, is is this? Uh, as you know, we we uh, we talked about this beforehand, but we end the uh, podcast uh, with a, with a song uh, selected by our guest, and I want you to tell us what uh, what that song is going to be, uh, who it, who it's by, and why you selected it. I'm glad I just have to select it and not sing it. Because, uh, you know, when I, when I sing in church, people people start leaving. So um, I picked. Uh, I, I want to pick uh, Kenny Chesney's song "Get Along," 
And uh, I picked that, Zach, because um, it just seems like there's a lot of divisiveness in our community right now and a lot of caustic speech. And um, it may be anxiety over the pandemic. It could be, you know, the, the facing no football. It could be people are running out of that supply of toilet paper in their garage. I don't know. People are just kind of kind of caustic right now. And I, and I think that uh, it has a good message. And if people just uh, take a deep breath, um, we all can get along. Good stuff. Uh, so I, I hope everybody enjoys uh, that song as we listen to it, as as we fade out here. Um, it, b- before we go, uh, is there? Do you, are you on Twitter? Are there? Is, are, are any other social platforms? Or do you have an email address you can you can give people if they'd like to follow you or reach out to you in some way? You know, I still write a column every Sunday in the transcript, and so people can follow that. And uh, there's an email address attached to that. And I've, I've done that for about 25 years now, and write a weekly column. And, uh, there's, there's, they've even put out a few uh, handbooks, a collection of columns. I, I saw one on eBay the other day for a dollar eighty-five. So uh, good investment. You know, your, okay. your, your, your fame is fleeting. So, <laughs> but uh, no, I, people people contact me through that. I get. You know, Norman history questions all the time, and I'm happy to help out if I can. Very good. Okay. Andy Rieger, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Zach. I'm honored to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you'd like to follow this podcast on any social platform, you can do so by searching I Am Norman Pod. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned for many more episodes to come. We both started laughing when the sky started to rain. Get along down the road, we got along. The I Am Norman podcast is brought to you by The Hall at the Railhouse, Norman's premier event space in the heart of downtown. When all this is said and done and life gets back to normal, the one thing we'll all be looking to do is celebrate with our friends and families. Weddings, receptions, corporate events, luncheons, banquets, proms, parties, and more. If you're looking for a place to celebrate life, we hope you'll choose The Hall at the Railhouse. For more information, please visit therailhousenorman.com or call 405-778-0003. Did she leave her hometown thinking she'd end up in L.A.? Did she break down in the desert and get stuck beside the highway? Get along, on down the road. It's not sometimes you got to get along down the road. We got a long, long way to go. Scared to live, scared to die. We ain't perfect, but we try. Get along while we can. Always give love the upper hand. Paint a wall, learn to dance, call your
Make a friend, can't we all get along? <laughs>